Medtronic Technologies impacted more than 72 million people in the last year, equating to two people every second. Harnessing the power of technology to take healthcare further, each technology has unique benefits designed to serve patients. The goal of this program is to get closer to the patient and delve into the challenges and impact of each technology in practice. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. The McGrath Mac video laryngoscope and McGrath Mac disposable laryngoscope blades are intended to be used by trained and licensed individuals to gain a view of the vocal cords during medical procedures. Medtronic's medical education programs are offered to provide attendees education on the FDA-cleared indications and use of our products when applicable. The contents and conclusions of the following program are solely those of the speakers unless otherwise cited. The speakers are responsible for all content and necessary permissions. The speakers received funding from Covidian LP, a Medtronic company, for this speaking engagement. For this segment of the series, a discussion on safe airway management, how can we make airway management safer? To help provide insight into this topic is Dr. Felipe Ordenera, academic anesthesiologist at both UF Health and Gainesville VA Medical Center. Now, I'm going to make a couple of assumptions. Um, number one is that you participate in airway management, otherwise you will not be here. And as me, some of you perhaps have actually thought about how can we make this issue, this, uh, for lack of a better term, how do we make this business safer, which is I think the goal of everyone that deals with this type of problems. So that, that's the assumption I'm going to be making here today. I think that many of you perhaps all of you here participate in the issue of intubation and airway management. This is an article published in 1944 in The Lancet, and it was talking about the, at that point, the issue of tracheal intubation was just being started. It had started earlier, of course, but at that point is when it started booming. And I took basically some highlights of, of this article. It said basically the direct inspection of the larynx by a tubular endoscope. So if you think about it, we call it laryngoscope, but at that point they were called endoscopes. It basically is a difficult and mysterious technique. And still about almost 80 years later, it's still a difficult and a mysterious technique still. At that point in 1944, basically it seemed that luck is the chief factor of achieving success. Well, hopefully we're not in, well, we're in the 21st century now, and uh, hopefully luck is not as important, but still um, all of us that have ever participated in intubation, specifically dealing with sick patients, as you guys are familiar with dealing with, we've all encountered a patient that has been very difficult and make us sweat. And we also have basically been kind of mercy of different devices and, and, and instruments that help us accomplish this issue of intubation. And we've all seen that we've done major advancement uh, for different head and neck positions, but still with the right view. So for example, you can see the hyperextended upright position, um, the same person, which was Kirsten, one of the pioneers of laryngoscopy, then he did it in the supine, then perhaps one of the most important um, protagonists of this history, Chevalier Jackson, the father of ENT, uh, coined the term, the, the Chevalier Jackson voice position, which basically he used to establish a direct path to the larynx. And then Evan McGill tried the same thing, but blindly, and he used the term sniffing. And perhaps you've seen those patients either outside or inside of the operating room placed in this position that's still being used today. 
But since the 1960s or so, we're starting to be talking about the three-axis alignment, trying to align three axes with our instruments in order to allow us to do safe intubation. However, what's the problem with that? And most of you that have seen um, or participated or perhaps experienced on your own um, difficulty is the fact that when we encounter difficulty, which is not fortunately often, but it's often enough and significant is the issue is that our instruments do not allow us to perform a good visualization of the larynx and therefore the placement of the tube or the intubation as we call it becomes difficult. And then we start doing multiple attempts and multiple repetitions. And some of you have again participated in this fiascos of cases. And basically we've known since 2004 when basically we establish that if we had to do more than one attempt, specifically more than two attempts, then the chances of complications went up instrumentally to almost 10 times when we had to do two or less attempts. So basically, it was a great technique to have direct laryngoscopy, but it was a technique that in my opinion resembled kind of this bucket. It had full of holes and, and we had to look for different ways of doing it. Because if not, if we were basically left with that technique, um, and specifically nowadays that most of our patients are super obese or morbidly obese, et cetera, et cetera, obstructive sleep apnea has become quite common, then basically relying on strictly on this techniques, which are very important and they're the foundation for what we do today would not have been enough. And so, basically would have left like this. And some of you perhaps feel that way. I have felt this when I've done airway management. I felt like this, that I wanted to pursue kind of newer horizons so that I could avoid this sensation that we get when we encounter difficulty at intubation. So to me, one of the most important advancements in airway management happened in this uh, new century. And that was when we went from a direct to an indirect approach at glottic exposure and therefore at tube placement. And it required a couple of things to happen uh, along the lines in order to be able to do that. Well, first of all, it was a brilliant, um, I think it was, I think it was an anesthesiologist from Germany who first coupled a rigid bronchoscope to a curved blade, a regular Macintosh blade, and decided that it would be great if we could have the best of both worlds, being able to look around the, the, the tongue and also have a direct path of view of the larynx. But that did not go anywhere because obviously the technique was cumbersome and the devices that they used were basically common devices. Subsequent to that, Dr. Bullard the, developed one of the iconic and most important precursors of today's um, devices that we have, which was called the Bullard Laryngoscope. It was still being used uh, until a couple of years ago. It was cumbersome to use, but it was a great device. And once again, they use kind of a combination of techniques in order to look at the glottic opening from, from that regard. But it was not until basically 1999, so right before at the end of the, of, the, of the century, the turn of the century, when somebody decided to put a flexible scope into a Macintosh blade and said that that would be perhaps the ideal thing because we could basically circumnavigate or circumvent the, the normal rigidity of the tissues and therefore establish not a direct path of view to the glottis, but an indirect. 
And obviously it took basically the development of the computer chip and the CMOS technology that we use around today in order for things to actually materialize. So as a nutshell, and I don't wanna to get too much into, into the history of it, but, but it's actually fascinating history, is the fact that in my opinion, and the opinion to everybody, when we look about basically the evolution of the art of laryngoscopy, this is basically a great representation. Um, and before you can see there, therefore, that the, the, the last piece of the puzzle is not carrying a direct laryngoscope, but actually is carrying an indirect laryngoscope. And I think that we all agree that this is basically a step further, and this is where we are today. So now, is the video laryngoscope make that much impact? And the answer is yes. Although I must admit my bias in the sense that I'm an enthusiast and an early adopter because it was back in 2006, right before the launch, the national, the, the international launch that I got to use one. And I said, this is the way to go because I am not having the difficulty that I'm facing with uh, direct laryngoscope. I saw that there was basically a tendency for patients to become much larger, more effective sleep apnea. We needed a new instrument, and this was basically the answer to that, that request. And where are we? Well, basically, if you look at, at the current numbers, and this is a study, a very important study published in uh, 2018 in anesthesiologists that showed that We've made tremendous improvement in our management. Obviously, we're not 100% foolproof. We're never meant to be like that, but we've actually made major improvements. In terms of difficult airway, we went from a rate of 6.6 .6 to 1.6 per thousand. That is more, the almost a fourfold decrease in difficult intubations. And basically, in failure of intubation, we went from 0.2 to 0.06. To 0.2 to 0.06. So also as well, a, a decrease of four times the number of failures to intubate. That means that we're basically having sicker patients in the operating room and outside the operating room, and that includes everywhere, emergency department, uh, ICU, et cetera, et cetera, in which we are experiencing less number of failures. That doesn't mean they still do not happen. And I don't want to leave the impression that this is basically the foolproof type of technique. It is not. It's basically a step ahead, an improvement to what we had before. Now, what evidence do I have of such? Well, good question. The issue is that the technology is still fairly new. And it's only basically, like I said, they were launched internationally in 2006. So if you think about it, it's a teenager in terms of uh, years. So all we can say at the present time is that we have an adult population, we have approximately five meta-analysis. Those five meta, excuse me, um, seven meta-analysis. Those, those seven meta-analysis add up to approximately 15,500 patients. And they've all had shown the benefits of the use of video laryngoscopy compared to direct laryngoscopy for the intubation of patients in and out of the operating room. That means that because of that, we're able to translate this success to the most critical patients, which is the ones I bet you've actually had the most encounter with, which is in the critical care and emergency medicine patients, and also when we talk about outside the hospital, whether it's in the civilian population 
or if you are part of the military in the military, um, basically in the field in combat, this basically have shown to be of great benefit. Now, where are we? You could actually ask in terms of, of, uh, of the ASA, which is basically the governing entity of, of what I practice in anesthesia is basically since in the span of 10 years, basically the issue of video laryngoscopy has basically appeared in our difficult airway algorithm. And every time we anesthetize somebody or are in charge of the airway management of a patient outside the operating room, one of the techniques that we have to consider is whether video assisted laryngoscopy should be the initial approach to intubation. So that's how important it has become uh, alongside also direct laryngoscopy, but video has made it into our uh, mainstream of uh, algorithm and guidelines. By the same token, it is recommended as well from the same practice guidelines that were published in 2013 and they're about to be updated in the next couple of years is the fact that as, as long part of your armamentarium, if you could call it like that, that part of your things that you put in your utility belt, same thing with other airway devices, video laryngoscope should be part of all the tools that everyone that handles airway must have at its disposal because it's one a great tool to actually be dealing with uh, for airway management. Now, some of you might be, um, I, going to assume once again or make the assumption that most of you have actually at some point or another dealt with video laryngoscopy, have seen it, have basically practiced it, whether it would be in the simulation or in real patients have done it yourself. And, and so the, the question that we have is which one? There are multiple video laryngoscopes out there, out there. And um, there, these are some of the most common uh, and traditional most prestigious uh, devices that we have in North America, at least I know in some other parts of the world, they have different brands, but these are the most common ones that are here in North America. And the question is, which one should we use? And that answer we don't have. There's some hints about it, which I'm going to be explaining to you what kind of, um, what do I think about this? What's the, the evidence that we have right now? But at this point, we do not have uh, comparative studies because there's not been enough time to uh, have those important comparative significant studies that can answer this question. And basically it boils down to whatever you use the most, you're most familiar with, of course you're going to be better at it. And it doesn't really matter if I, if you have used device A and I tell you the device B in some studies should uh, point out that it was superior, if you're better and have 10 times more experience with device A, you're going to be more successful no matter what. So a lot of it has to do with that at the present time. The Macintosh type of blades, which basically mean normal curvature of a blade itself, and of which in North America, we have basically four, which is the CMAC, uh, the McGrath, the Glidescope Direct, and the iView. Uh, those are the most commons that we have in, in, in North America. Uh, there's an, also another category, which is one that has a great amount of uh, popularity. A lot of people really like these devices, which is called the hyper acute angle or acute angle blades. 
of which stand the CMAC D-blade, the Glidescope, and the McGrath X-blade. And there are still some others that basically are what we call the channel or guided devices in which um, instead of entering the tube with a free hand, the tube is preloaded into the device itself. And basically you point it at the glottic opening and deploy the tube, the tube directly because the, the device itself has a channel. And of, of this, we have the, the King Vision, the Pentax AWS and, and the AirTrack. Now, one of the things is that you will read conflicting uh, evidence and literature, which one is best or which one is the other. And, and in fairness, we do not know enough at the present time to be actually telling you this is one is better or this one is better than the other. Because most of the studies, when you read them or when you basically decide to interpret them, you have to take into account that not all of them are done the same, not all of them have the same goals. Um, one of the things is that the results of those studies are dependent results. That means if they all are done with who's performing the, the procedure. It's not the same to have experienced um, people with 10 years of uh, familiarity with the device and putting those people to compare them to people that are just graduating from high school. Well, obviously the performance is going to change uh, depending on who's doing the procedure. The same thing is which patients are being evaluated. Is the study that you're reading is with a simulated scenario or with a mannequin or a dummy as we call them, or is it with real patients? And if they're real patients, are they patients that are really sick or for example, morbidly obese or et cetera? So those results will vary according to that. And last is that most studies have different results. So for example, it's different to say time to intubation than comparing to um, first pass success. Those are different goals and they may imply the same, but they're not the same exactly. So you have to be careful when you're interpreting current studies that are available in terms of the different video laryngoscopes out there. I think if we were to basically summarize, and if you allow me to summarize the evidence at this point, we have a heterogeneous research endpoints. And what I can tell you is that indirect laryngoscopy or video laryngoscopy, if you want to call it that way, improves glottic visualization. There is no question about that. However, the issue of intubation or the placement of the tube is something that is a little bit still questioned because most of the studies have shown that the use of these devices in general increase the time for intubation. And some of them, basically are more difficult to, to use the, than others. So I think it's fair to say that is when you talk about video laryngoscopy, even though we can discuss it as a whole and as a, as a class of devices, it's more important. And I always ask, speak to me as about a specific device because it's not the same to be comparing a normal curvature blade to one that's hyperangulated. It's not the same. Now also keeping in mind that even though I already said this, I think it's important that different studies have different endpoints. And it, so one would basically does not lead to compare to the others if both endpoints are not the same. So be careful when you interpret the literature out there. And also keep in mind that specifically, and this goes more importantly to hyperangulated blades, 
which are extremely popular in North America, the time of intubation can be increased. So that's something that, that's, uh, that um, to keep in mind. Please tune in next week for a new segment from this series wherever you find your podcast. This is the Medtronic MedEd Learning Experience. Thank you for listening.